And a good, good afternoon, one and all. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome to this afternoon show, folks. As you can tell, I'm pumped and excited for today's guest. Dr. Francis Collins is here. Now, he may not be a household name to you, but what he has done, certainly, you will have heard of because it's all over the papers for the past 10 years. He led the project, are you ready for this? To break the human genome. That's right, folks. He's the fellow that led everybody that mapped out our DNA. How exciting is that? Dr. Francis Collins is inspirational. He is a humanitarian and cares so much about people's suffering. That is why he decided to head up this project. And they achieved it in record-breaking time. Dr. Francis Collins. I'm a physician. The reason I got excited about being involved in this was the promise that it held for medicine. The genome is a bright light that we can shine into these dark areas that can enable us to understand the causes of disease and to come up with new ideas about treatment when you look at the field of cancer. Cancer is a disease of the genome. It comes about because of mistakes in DNA. And we're now cataloging what mistakes cause lung cancer and ovarian cancer and brain cancer. And that is already teaching us things we had no idea that will lead us to a totally different way of preventing and treating these terrible diseases. This afternoon, the Human Genome Project and the man who led the project to break it, Dr. Francis Collins, right now on Brent Holland. Folks, if you're just joining us, we have a very special guest with us this afternoon, and I think visionary would be a good way to describe Dr. Francis S. Collins. Dr. Francis Collins, from 1993 to 2008, he led the Human Genome Project, and just a little under a year ago, on July 9, 2009, President Obama invited him to be the director of the National Institute of Health. I would like to welcome Dr. Francis Collins to the show today. We're going to be talking about the Human Genome Project, of course, and uh, his involvement with it. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks, Brent. It's great to have you with us. Okay, let's start off at the beginning. Most of us are aware of something called DNA. 
and its uses in criminal cases, because we all watch CSI, of course. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how does DNA relate to the human genome? Well, the human genome is DNA, so let me define what a genome is, because it's not exactly a household word quite yet, although maybe someday it will be. So the genome is all of the hereditary material of an organism. It is made up of DNA. It's an instruction book, is a pretty good metaphor. It is is what gets passed from parent to child down through the generations. Every one of the cells in your body has this complete set of instructions uh, made up of the letters of the DNA code. That's the genome. And there are about 3 billion of those letters in the human genome, making it a pretty impressive instruction book. But I guess it has to be or we wouldn't be such fancy organisms. <laughs> 3 billion. Wow. What was the first clue that even such a thing would even exist? Well, there were debates, of course, going back a long way about how heredity worked. Uh, Darwin uh, certainly figured out 150 plus years ago that there must be some way in which over long periods of time, a gradual change could result in the appearance of new species. So there had to be something behind that. DNA was actually discovered in 1860 something or other uh, by Miescher, but most people thought it was a rather boring molecule that was just sort of packing and didn't have any particular biological interest. And it wasn't until 1944, uh, working with the bacterium, uh, that Avery, McLeod, and McCarty figured out that DNA actually carried hereditary information. And then, of course, in the most significant discovery of the 20th century, Watson and Crick in 1953 pointed out the double helical structure of DNA based on the X-ray pictures from Rosalind Franklin. And then it all fell together because you could see how this elegant molecule could carry information using this digital code based upon just four letters in its alphabet. But if you've got three billion of those, well, you can spell out an awful lot of information. You sure can. Now, it is my understanding that 99% of all DNA is the same. It's that 1% that makes us unique and distinct. Was so if we're talking about, yeah, if we're talking about humans, actually it's 99.5% of my DNA is the same as yours, Brent. And that would be true if I picked somebody else living in another part of the world. We are all very similar. We have this shared ancestry that results in our having this commonality in our instruction books. Of course, if I decided to look not at another human, but at another species, let's say a dog or a cat, I would still discover uh, that in the parts of the genome that are most important for function, we have remarkable similarities. So this is the digital evidence that Darwin was right, uh, that life descends from a common ancestor and DNA carries the memory of all of that uh, down through the hundreds of millions of years. Wow. Now, does plant life also carry DNA? It absolutely does. Every living thing uses DNA as its instruction book. There are some viruses that actually use RNA, which is another kind of information molecule, but closely related. But again, Again, this is another indication of the shared nature of life having all descended from some common start point. And I suspect that that common start point is probably universal right across the universe. In other words, if we were to find uh, biological life forms on other planets, 
it may contain the same building blocks. Would that be a correct assumption? Well, many people would love to know the answer to that. And maybe someday if life does pop up somewhere else in the universe, we'll be able to test that idea. I think you could come up with other possible ways uh, for a information molecule to exist. It wouldn't be exactly like DNA. So it's certainly imaginable that there might be other life forms that arose independently in other parts of the universe that aren't quite the same in terms of how they achieve what they need to achieve to be living, which is to be able to carry information and to be able to replicate yourself. Folks, we're speaking with Dr. Francis S. Collins this afternoon, a truly visionary man, and we're really lucky to have him on the show this afternoon. Dr. Francis Collins, of course, from 1993 to 2008, led the Human Genome Project. Let's talk about the sequencing aspects of the Human Genome Project. Can you explain exactly to our listeners what sequencing entails? Sequencing is basically reading out the letters of the DNA code. Again, there's only four letters in the DNA alphabet. Uh, They're actually chemical bases, but we abbreviate them by A, C, G, and T. And so when you're trying to read the sequence of a DNA molecule, you're trying to figure out what the series of letters is. Is it A, C, T, G, 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 C, A, or is it something different than that? DNA is too small to be able to read this under the microscope. You can't just look at it and call out uh, what the series of letters is. So the way in which this is done basically uses enzymes and chemical reactions in fluorescent tags, uh, a different color for each of those four letters, to be able to say with a particular piece of DNA, what's the series of letters that it carries. And, you know, in the old days, uh, gosh, back when I was a postdoctoral fellow, uh, you could practically get a PhD if you could read out a thousand of those letters, and it might take you two or three years to do that. To do the Human Genome Project, if we were really going to deliver on this promise, which was a pretty audacious one, we knew we would have to read a thousand letters every second, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, uh, for about a year and a half in order to get that done. And when the project was first put forward in 1990, we had no clue how we were going to speed up the technology to to make that possible. So there's a lot of innovation and invention that had to happen to make this dream come true. But happily, it did. We recruited some of the best and brightest scientists of this generation to join the effort. And uh, with that kind of creativity and a lot of hard work and a lot of organization pulling people from different countries to work together on this project, it all got done. In fact, we are this uh, this very month celebrating the 10th anniversary of that first announcement that we had a draft of the human genome. That was June 26, 2000. Congratulations on that. And it truly was an international project. And that's what I like to hear, bringing people together for the better of mankind. Okay, let's get esoterical just for a second. And sir, I, I understand you're under some constraints about what you can discuss about religion and things like that. So if this question is off base, I'll go in a different direction. But let's just for imagine a second that you're God, and I know your wife would have some words to say to you about that. Let's imagine, though, that you're God. Is this the genetic map that you would create for life? Well, it's an incredibly elegant map, to be sure. I'm very hesitant to carry out your experiment here of imagining being God, because I have no idea what God's mind must really be like. It must be so much more awesome than anything I can contemplate. But I do think that if there was a plan uh, for life to come into being and to ultimately include creatures like ourselves, uh, that this was an incredibly elegant way to achieve that, to have this molecule with all of its potential for 
the things that it now does in terms of directing amazing kinds of life forms that we see around us on this planet, from bacteria to amazing plant and animal forms and to humans themselves. What a system and what an amazing outcome as a result. So, yeah, I'm, I'm in awe, sure. Is it both complicity and simplicity at the same time? It is both complexity, yeah, sure, and simplicity. It is, it is simple in the sense that you can essentially, at a first approximation, think of this as an instruction book written in this funny language that we're just now starting to read with just these four letters. But obviously, it's enormously complex to be able to direct all the biological properties of a human being, which means going from a single cell, branch, which you and I once were, uh, to an incredibly complicated organism with hundreds of trillions of cells doing amazing things, including a brain, which is the most complicated structure we know of in the whole universe. Where does it fall short? And where does it excel? Well, it's a bit, um, uh, in, in a certain way, when you look at the genome, it's a bit puzzling that there is a fair amount of stuff in there that has arrived along the way, transposable elements, jumping genes that have sort of landed there and been carried along uh, generation after generation. So in that sense, you could say some parts of it are a bit puzzling and maybe even a bit inelegant, but it obviously does what it needs to do. And we should be very careful, I think, not to look at any part of the genome and say, well, that's unnecessary because we don't really know enough to say that. And some of the things we now consider to be uh, sort of the, the junk in the genome, I think we should not use that word because we don't know enough to call anything junk at this point. What are the direct benefits from this mapping and sequencing of the human genome? I'm a physician. The reason I got excited about being involved in this was the promise that it held for medicine because there are so many diseases that we don't understand very well. We don't know why they arise. We don't know why some people at risk for these. We don't know why they run in families. And we don't know what to do when somebody comes down with one of those diseases in terms of treatment. We have things that we offer. They often don't work as well as we'd like. The genome is a bright light that we can shine into these dark areas of our own ignorance that can enable us to understand the causes of disease and to come up with new ideas about treatment that are much more rational. And that is happening. When you look at the field of cancer, for instance, cancer is a disease of the genome. It comes about because of mistakes in DNA. And we're now cataloging in a very comprehensive way what mistakes cause lung cancer and ovarian cancer and brain cancer. And that is already teaching us things we had no idea about those diseases that will lead us over time, because this doesn't happen overnight, to a totally different way of preventing and treating these terrible diseases. Folks, we're speaking with an incredible gentleman this afternoon. His name is Dr. Francis S. Collins. As of last year, July 2009, President Obama has named him director of the National Institute of Health. Before that, are you ready for this, folks? From 1993 to 2008, he led the Human Genome Project. Yeah. <laughs> what an incredible person we have for a guest this afternoon. We're talking about, of course, the Human Genome Project, and we're going to be talking about some other derivatives of that project. Dr. Francis, what drives you? What continues to drive you? Um, I'm a curious guy, and I'm also somebody who hopes to do something in this limited time I'm here on this earth that will help people. So the curiosity is a wonderful motivation to be a scientist. You're trying to understand how things work and using the tools of science uh, to be able to answer questions that have puzzled humanity uh, for as long as we've been around. But I'm also excited about this science because of its potential to help people who are suffering from terrible diseases. And if I can do something that makes that 
possibility, just a little bit more real, then I feel like I've spent my time well. What is the most devastating disease you have come across? Oh, wow, Brent, that's hard to say because I've got to tell you, there are so many uh, that are so troubling uh, when you see people struck down by these diseases that they did nothing to bring on themselves. Certainly, I guess I am most affected when I see a child uh, who's affected with the disease, maybe uh, particularly a child with cancer. And uh, here we are in a circumstance where we do better than we used to in terms of treating kids with cancer, but we still don't do as well as we'd like to. And everything we can do to push that agenda forward, as we're now doing at the National Institutes of Health, is very worth uh, the, the taxpayers' investments. And I should say right off, we wouldn't be doing this research if it weren't for taxpayers. They are the ones who are paying the bill. The National Institutes of Health is the U.S. government's investment in this kind of research. It's the largest investment in the world. It supports more than 300,000 scientists in laboratories all over the country and some outside the U.S., people who are laboring every day to try to get these answers, dedicated, hardworking, and I might say underpaid scientists, but who are just as passionate as I am about finding answers and doing something to help people. What makes you angry, Dr. Collins? What frustrates you the most? Well, I'm angry about disease, I'll tell you. And I'm frustrated when disease strikes and we have not yet found the answers to it because uh, I want to go fast. I'm an impatient guy in a hurry. I want to see the promise of medical research come true, and I don't want to wait. I know uh, that basically there are reasons uh, why our progress can't happen overnight, and we have to be willing to accept the fact that many good ideas turn out to be wrong and that many experiments fail. That's the nature of science. If you're working on the cutting edge, a lot of things aren't going to work out and you've got to pick yourself up and start over again. But boy, you know, then once in a while, something really amazing happens where you see this new revelation about how life works and how you can apply that to disease. And then you say, let's just go faster. Faster and faster and faster exponentially. You sequenced the human genome in, you mapped it about basically in 2000. It is now 2010, some 10 years later. What have we achieved in that period of time? So yes, you say I sequenced it, but I had the pleasure of leading a team of about 2,500 scientists in six countries who did this. Let me be quick to say it was an amazing team. Uh, it was Pasteur who said science belongs to no one country. Well, that certainly was true of the Genome Project. It's our shared inheritance. It's good we were all working on it. In those 10 years, we've learned a prodigious amount about the genome. We've learned about that half a percent of DNA where each individual differs in a unique way. We've discovered hundreds of places in the genome where there are these variants that place people at risk for things like diabetes or heart disease or cancer or high blood pressure. And those discoveries are now leading us to the possibility of predicting who's at risk for which illnesses in a way that will empower better prevention, where you're not doing the one-size-fits-all approach to staying healthy. You're actually getting information about your individual circumstances. We're learning about how to make a better prediction of which drug at which dose is right for you if you fall ill and need treatment. And we're discovering hundreds of new pathways that cause disease that become immediate targets for the development of the next round uh, of basically rational drugs that will go right to the heart of the problem, will be more likely to be successful and less likely to have side effects. All of that in 10 years ain't bad. Plus, we've learned just in the basic science arena how it is that the genome, this instruction book, can actually be modified in terms of its function. Because, you know, you have the same DNA in your liver cell and your brain cell and your muscle cell, but obviously those are very different cells. They must know how to use the genome 
genome in different ways, we are learning what those rules are, which is profound. It's almost like there's a whole subsystem of intelligence going on at a micro level. Indeed. And some people have called this the epigenome, uh, which is not the DNA, A, C, G, and T letters, but the way in which those are modified uh, by proteins binding to the DNA that allow certain genes to turn on or turn off. And that may also be the way that the environment influences our genomes. And this is a critically important area to understand better. You and I are not going to be able to change our genomes. We kind of have what we were given by our parents. And within all of our genomes, there are risks for disease. There are no perfect specimens at the DNA level. But if we can figure out uh, how those interactions occur with the environment, then we can recommend to people how to modify their environment by diet, by lifestyle, exercise, medical surveillance in order to stay healthy despite what your inheritance is. Because it's not just the cards that you're dealt, it's how you play the hand. Exactly. Exactly. Folks, I don't know about you, but I am pumped and inspired today. Our guest today, Dr. Francis S. Collins. From 93 to 2008, he led the Human Genome Project. And President Obama, as of last year, July 9th, has named him the director of the National Institute of Health. Incredible, incredible man with a vision. And he cares about helping people. How great is that? And he's doing it. Just a few more questions for you, doctor, then I'll let you get on with your day. How do stem cells work into all of this? Oh, in a very exciting way. Uh, Stem cells, after all, are teaching us how it is uh, that cells can transform from being one cell type to another. And the opportunity that presents to try to treat diseases where one particular cell type isn't working anymore and you want to try to replace it has gotten the field uh, very jazzed. Admittedly, that's a promise that we're not quite sure of in terms of how long it will take to test that out and how hard it will be. But now, especially with this new development where you can take a skin cell uh, from an individual and convince it to basically become almost anything, uh, what's called induced pluripotent stem cells, uh, the potential there to treat conditions like spinal cord injury or diabetes or Parkinson's disease uh, is truly exciting. We have a lot of work to do, but it is another very active area of investigation and lots of scientists plunging in uh, to try to get those answers. Man, if we could even solve one of those problems, you know, my sister's been diabetic since she was seven and I hope Mm. she's not listening right now. She's 47, so that's 40 years. Um, Wow. Yeah, and uh, many of her friends have gone blind, of course, and have lost limbs. So that is one thing that I am very passionate about, finding a cure for that. I bet, and it's been very big advance that President Obama made the decision to open up research on human embryonic stem cells to a larger set of stem cell lines. And one of my jobs has been to review the applications that have come through to allow more lines to be used with federal funds. And we're now up to 75 of those, uh, which is a big advance in terms of the potential. Doctor, what are the inherent dangers we face with this knowledge? Do we have the capacity, the moral integrity to deal with the issues we will be facing now? I think that's a question on everybody's minds. Science tends to go forward sometimes at a breathtaking pace, and I guess our record down through history has not always been great here in terms of anticipating what some of those ethical and moral dilemmas might be. One of the things when I was running the Genome Project that I was most proud of was a program on ethical, legal, and social implications uh, of that research, which in its uh, maturity turned out to be, and still is, the largest 
largest source of research funding for bioethics uh, for any program ever. And that did, in fact, provide an opportunity to anticipate uh, some of the things that are coming down the pike. That's what we need to do, not wait for the crisis, but actually informed by the reality of what science can do and what it can't do, make sure that we're prepared for applications that might be a few years away so that as they arrive on our doorstep, we already have a pretty good plan about what to do. Just a couple of more questions. How's the music band going? (laughs) Uh It is a good opportunity uh, to step outside of the scientific world and, uh, yeah, let your hair down a little bit. So, yes, I confess I'm a, a rock and roller. What kind of guitar are you using? A Stratocaster, Les Paul? Uh, no, I actually have a custom-made Hudson Dalton uh, with a pickup in it, which is like a gorgeous instrument that even has a mother-of-pearl double helix on the fretboard. Uh-huh. Excusez-moi, monsieur. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Folks, we're speaking with a wonderful human being this afternoon, just a great guy, Dr. Francis S. Collins. From 93 to 2008, he led the Human Genome Project, and he is now because President Obama has nominated him as the director of the National Institute of Health, and he has picked the right man for the job. Final question, sir. You are virtually speaking to every Canadian university student and international student across Canada from coast to coast to coast. We have three coasts in Canada. What would you say to them? I would say for anybody who's interested in the possibility of getting involved in science, this is going to be a fantastic century, especially in biomedical research. We are now standing on the foundations that have been built in the last few years, but we have a lot that we can do with that. And if anybody has a leaning in that direction, whether it's to do cell biology or computer science, because a lot of what we're dealing with now is computational, come on down. We could certainly use all of that talent. And even for those who are listening who don't find themselves drawn to science as a career, to stay informed about this, to become an educated consumer and an educated voter is going to be important because the science policy implications of what we're learning are also pretty profound. That's perfect. And I've got to tell you, I'm inspired. Now I'm thinking about leaving my music career and going into science. I uh, I compose music for NASA and ABC and CBS and all those guys. This is just a volunteer gig for me. Oh, uh, well, maybe we need some music about the genome, Brent. Come on, uh, put forward something. I, I'll, I'll get my band to play it. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great. But you can't bring your guitar like Jimi Hendrix, okay? <laughs> I do want to thank you sincerely for all your incredible work for humanity and making people's lives better. This well, is something this is something I think we should all set a goal for and work towards. Thanks, Brent. I think I've been really fortunate to have a chance to play all these roles in in science. It's been uh, amazing blessing to me uh, to be in the midst of such an exciting era and be able to work with such amazing people. Just incredible, and I thank you again, my friend, and uh, all the very best to you always. And I know you have a new book coming out and I have ordered it. I will read the book and if it's cool with you, maybe in a couple of months we'll have you back on and we'll discuss the book. Thank you very much. That's great. Thanks for the interview. Enjoyed chatting with you. I want to sincerely thank Dr. Francis Collins for coming on the show this afternoon and I want to emphasize to you folks, this is a man of flesh and blood. There's nothing that he has done that you cannot accomplish as well. That's what this show was all about is to inspire you to go beyond your own belief system, to achieve more than you ever thought possible from yourself. And you can do it. 
This is a fellow that can show you how and has done it himself. There's a whole realm of possibilities out there just waiting for someone like you and their input. Get to it because we need you. Coming up on Brent Holland, the Canadian Century moving out of America's shadow, the author, Brian Lee Crowley, and he explains to us how Canada is a leader in the world economically. Everybody looks to Canada as a solution to their problems. Brian Lee Crowley. You probably don't recognize the extent to which Canada has carved out for itself a place in the world that is the envy of almost every other country. One of the reasons we wanted to write this book was so that Canadians, including young people who have no recollection of the struggle to balance the budget and fix the Canada pension plan and bring in free trade with the United States, so that they would understand and put that in the context of what it takes to make a great country. Because I think Canada is a great country. You know, when you look at uh, Europe and all the difficulties they're going through right now in Greece and Spain and places like that, where you look at the United States, where they're stuck with unreformed social security and health care financing problems and so on. And you look at Canada and you really should feel that Canada is a place that we are deservedly proud of these days, but we mustn't take the great things we've accomplished here for granted. As always, check out www.brenthollandshow.com. A wealth of shows there for research, Real living history, just like Dr. Collins, our guest today, the fellow who led the Human Genome Project. Real living history for you to research and be inspired by. I want to thank you all, as always, for listening. I'm Brent Holland. See you later.